Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Abdullah. I'm the co-founder of Silverline Community and I will be your host for the Mean Who podcast, a show that will shed light on the movers, shakers and shapers of the creative and cultural industries. Continuing on our theme on transformation, we will be talking about transformation within literature with none other than Fiametta Rocco, who is the administrator of the International Booker Prize, the most renowned literary award foundation in the world, as well as being an honorary fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Fiametta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Abdullah. It's a pleasure. Would you please share with us a bit about your background? So I have this very Italian name, but um, the first thing I have to say is actually I'm a fake Italian, really. I grew up in Kenya. My family went there in the 1920s and bought a farm. And I grew up with my sisters and my cousins were all girls um, on a farm quite far from Nairobi with no television. We had radio, of course, BBC World Service, which my grandmother controlled. But, you know, none, none of the stuff that we have nowadays, this, this is the late 50s through the 60s, um, through independence, through the end of empire, all sorts of things happening. But we really had no iPhones, no television, no podcasting, none of that at all. But so we had, we had to entertain ourselves and we had a lot of music. Um, we wrote plays, we did performances, and of course we read. Reading was very big because um, for an Italian family, we had, we had no boys. And so my grandparents were very keen that um, education was fundamental. And if there were no boys to educate, then they would educate their girls. So reading was huge and books was the only thing that my grandparents never stinted on. We had these boxes of books that would arrive in the post that we would open, take home back to the farm and open there. And so reading for pleasure, reading for joy, was something that I picked up very, very, very early. And I think it's well known now that if you want children to become readers, they have to learn this reading for pleasure at a, at a young age. And of course, we didn't only read alone. We, we read to each other. We read out loud, poetry often, stories. And what I realize now is that that communitarian spirit of storytelling is a very, very ancient human expression, which fulfills so many needs, you know, it brings people together. It's the way we pass on cultural memory from generation to generation. And it's the way we fertilize and water and train and stretch our human imagination. So it's really fundamental to us. You read in English uh, exclusively. I am, um, well, I grew up speaking French with my mother. My mother was French. My father was Italian. We spoke Swahili, of course, with the children that I pay, played with in rural mm -hmm. Kenya. I only learned English when I went to school and then Arabic when I went to university. But having studied and read English, I would say, 
yes, English is my first language, but I do read in in French and Italian as well. And being this multicultural and multilingual, how do you describe your relationship with language and its role in your own personal transformation? So, you know, it's it's interesting, particularly because my with my parents, my mother spoke to me in French, my father in Italian. Um, with these other children, we spoke Swahili at school, I spoke English. Languages at first were what brought me to certain specific people. They, they, were, they were door openers to other people. And I'm always rather surprised here in Britain now. It's become um, considered rude to ask people where they're from because you're making an assumption that they're foreign, they're not from here. But I always feel you, you also lose so much in being nervous about asking people about themselves because it's an incredibly basic connection. So if I take a taxi here and I hear an accent, an Eastern African accent, there are lots of Somali, Ethiopian, Eritrean taxi drivers here, I always say to them first, I come from Kenya, where do you come from? And in a way, it opens the conversation into a different, a different way. And I guess in the terms of, of, of my own transformation as I was growing up, every language casts a different shade, a different light on the world. You know, every Italian knows the first line of Dante's divine comedy, you know, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. Halfway through the journey of our life, I found that I was in a gloomy wood because the path which led aright was lost. Every child knows this. You know immediately that you're going to be on a quest for light. And this language, Italian, you know, it's the child of Latin, um, Italy with Rome as its capital at the heart of the Roman Catholic world. The search for light in Dante, in Catholicism, in all of Italian language, in all of Italian painting, Italian has always, for me, been about the search for light more than anything. And other languages, other languages do different things. But that's what Italian Italian does for me. I was uh, trying to register one of my companies, and because I'm very much influenced by Italian culture, specifically Renaissance, and the word for enlightenment was illuminismo. And I found it to be one of the most poetic words to describe exactly what you just said. Because it's... So illumination, illuminismo... For me, that there is a stronger sense of light in there than there is in the Enlightenment, which also contains the same word. It's it's sort of deeper and more spiritual. So I, yeah, I can see that. I want to circle back to the point where you uh, mentioned that reading is such a fundamental human value. Can you further elaborate on that? Well, you know, I like to think about art and music and literature, which is, which is what I write about, as being about opening your eyes in the widest sense. And certainly there are many, many expressions of culture in which it's absolutely true 
to use a phrase that, that Neil McGregor likes, the former director of the British Museum, and in fact, this year's chair of the Booker Prizes, he always likes to say, what unites us is stronger than what divides us. But I think there is one art form for which that goes beyond that phrase, one art form in which you can truly step into somebody else's shoes and feel what makes them sing, what makes them love, what makes them weep, and that is literature. More than music, more than theatre, more than art, reading is the only art form that truly allows you to lose yourself in a story, in a setting, in a character. It's, it's so fundamental. It's one of the finest things that humans have invented to transform people, to transform how they think, how they see things. And I think inevitably, hopefully, to transform society. We believe such uh, emotions get lost in translation literally when the work is being translated from its original language to another foreign language? Do we lose some of its essence or is this a challenge? So, you know, I think that is what goes to the heart of great literary translation. I mean, we've all read books where we go, really? Is this what... What is it that makes this book so great? And then you have people who say, oh, if only you could read it in the original, you'd really, really understand. Or the other way around, books that are don't go anywhere in their own language for whatever reason are remade by a, a brilliant translator. So I think translation, the quality of translation and the human brilliance that can be brought to it, the musicality that can be brought to it, can be um, absolutely fundamental. And we all read books in translation. You know, none of us reads every language on earth. Do you think that would be possible at some point with technology? To read every language on earth? Yes. In its original? I hadn't really thought about that. What would be the point of everybody understanding every language? I mean, we've developed other ways of understanding each other and translation and interpreting is a very big part of that. Why would we throw all of that centuries of human evolution away? But how do you believe literature is adapting to our changing times and how we as humans consume culture? Well, in terms of culture, I would say about literature, and here I, I, I speak mostly about fiction because it's what I know best. Mm. I think it's really quite robust. It's flexible, it's imaginative, and it has a seemingly endless capacity for renewal. So we're not only getting new stories from a younger generation about technology, about sexuality, sexual fluidity, about migration and movement and rebirth, but we're also getting new forms of fiction. I mean, you know, Bernadine Evaristo's Girl, Woman, Other is like no other novel that's gone before it, or Septology by, by the Norwegian playwright novelist 
John Fawcett is like no other novel that's gone before it. It's such, uh, such is the human imagination that as a reader, you don't even realize that there's a gap in which you can fit a book that is so unlike anything that's gone before. But you can, you do, they turn up and suddenly you realize that actually your, your, your reading imagination, which you thought was an incredibly dense forest, has a little space where a new tree can grow. As someone who's involved in the International Man Booker Prize, I can name from memory very few titles that have been translated. Just, yes. Sorry, can I just stop you for one second? So it's not man anymore. Man is man has stopped being the sponsor. Okay. Just called the International Booker Prize. Thank you for the correction. Sorry, right. it's just just so, so with the International Booker Prize, I recall some um, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall being adapted into the screen as a limited TV series. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about literary works being adapted for the screen from books? Do you believe it's helping literature's evolution and future, or is it undermining it? You know, I'm not sure that I have a really simple take on this because... There's so much variety out there. Some of it is positive, evolutionary, and some of it will be undermining. What I do see, though, is that a lot of very popular content, whether it's Netflix, you know, more conventional television, but long TV series is a very good example of it, is very similar to the experience of reading, say, Charles Dickens in the 19th century, which would have come out in installments. So perhaps although the technology is changing, has changed, fundamental human need for stories has not. And in your opinion, do you believe there are challenges being faced by individuals in the literary field when it comes to protecting their intellectual properties? Is this something that you face? I think the most difficult thing that I see in the day-to-day is lack of respect. Lack of respect for writers, for translators, and ultimately also for readers. You know, many countries have very robust forms of law about intellectual property and about trying to protect them. But the fact that these are broken sometimes with impunity, the fact that these laws are so hard to enforce comes down to one thing, which is lack of respect for the creators among us. Why do you think that's the case? I don't know. I I think it's partly habit. You know, it's a very fractured world. It's a very fractured industry, publishing in, in, in every single way. Small companies, individual authors, there are people who are vulnerable and there are people who are weak compared with other parts of the machine. And uh, I think it's easy to step on them. That's such a sad statement because if, if you go back to history, all versions of hakawatis or storytellers across several civilizations 
were re- highly regarded in communities. So that's really very sad to hear. But I also think it resonates with a lot of other factions of the creative industries, not only literature, unfortunately. I'm sure that's true. And I think, you know, one of the very important things that we've seen in the last six months in the West, for example, is a real campaign for not just the recognition of translators, but for a search for sort of best practice, because translators are very, very easy to overlook. And I've become involved in this because, you know, the the Booker Prize is one of, if not the most important prize for a single book in the Anglophone world. It's 50 years old. And in 2005, the Booker Prize Foundation founded another prize, this time for translated fiction. This is the International Booker Prize. So now we have these two annual prizes, which are, you know, they're the mirror image of each other. One is for a novel from anywhere in the world, written in English and published in Great Britain or Ireland. And the other is for a novel also from anywhere in the world, but written in another language, translated into English and published again in in Britain and Ireland. And the importance that the art of translation brings to literature and why we've become involved in this this campaign to support translators is such that the, the International Booker Prize offers its prize money, 50,000 pounds, in equal division. Uh, And this is absolutely fundamental. Prize money is equally divided between the author and the translator. I think that there are publishers who, who will say, who won't even put a translator's name on the front of the book because there's meant to be something sort of difficult about translated fiction and maybe having a the fact that it has a translator's name on the front means maybe somebody won't buy it. This campaign is, is really quite important. Well done. And uh, honestly, it's through the campaign that I got to hear about Jochal Harthi's novel, Celestial uh, yes. Beings. Yeah. Celestial Bodies. Celest- Celestial <laughs> Bodies, exactly. Yeah. I just saw her. I was in Oman last month and I saw her and she's about to bring out another book. That's wonderful to hear. I will leave you one one last thought, Fiametta. If there is a common misconception about literature that you would like to correct, what would it be? Translated literature, translated fiction is somehow hard. That there's something so difficult about fiction from another language that some people will be put off. They won't buy it. They won't read it. You know, all of us have read Tolstoy or Thomas Mann or Proust. And unless you were Russian or German or French, you were reading those books in translation. There's so much to be gained, so much to be learned, so much wonderful, wonderful stuff to read. And when you talk to translators, you talk to a translator like Jessica Cohen, for example, who's David Gossman's translate and works from Hebrew into English. She doesn't translate literally word for word. She tries not to do that because it results in people coming, have to come to think of the text as sounding like a translation. So 
Her first draft might be quite literal, but most of the work she does afterwards is getting away from the original in order to create a new and very, very distinct English language work. That's what she believes. And, you know, I'll give you just one little tiny example. In um, A Horse Walked Into a Bar, which was the book that won David Gossman and Jessica Cohen the International Booker Prize in 2017, there is a scene in which he is trying to describe rich people, newly rich people, just what their sort of physical presence is and what they smell of. And Jessica Cohen came up with this scent. She calls it O de 1%. Now, no AI machine or computer or anything, I would bet, could come up with something so quirky and idiosyncratic and so absolutely brilliant in English. As rich people's perfume is called Odor One Percent. I I honestly owe a huge thank you to every single translator that worked on the publications by Amin Malouf. He may not have won an international Booker Prize, but he has shaped a lot of the way I see the world from the current and historical and future perspectives. And because he writes predominantly in French, I never would have had the opportunity to immerse myself in his works, but his Gardens of Light is a manuscript for me. And I owe it to the translators behind this book. I'm so glad you say that because I'm such a huge fan of his. Oh, yes. I had the absolute pleasure to actually meet him in Abu Dhabi when they were holding the Arabic Booker Prize edition. But I'm not, yeah, I'm not well, sure it's, if it's related. It's not really. So it's colloquially known as the Arabic Booker Prize. It's the, uh, the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. We gave them a little bit of help at the beginning. Mm-hmm. A little, they came to us for advice. And um, so we remained very close. Jonathan Taylor our former chairman and Eve Smith, the secretary of the Booker Prize Foundation, have a very, very special fondness for um, the International Prize for, for Arabic Fiction. It's a really wonderful prize. But it's such a great seal of approval that right now I buy Arabic novels that have that kind of stamp. It feels more trustworthy in a way. Really? It so does. You think, do you think prizes are worth something or are they just part of the, do prizes have value for you or are they just part of the market? I I speak from a personal experience as a consumer. So when it comes to literature and for films, it's a certain type of prize that makes me want to want to watch the film. So let's say if a film won a BAFTA, but didn't win an Oscars, I'm more than curious to actually watch it because I believe BAFTA have a certain level of, Um, creative integrity in a way, and it's not fully commercial. Uh, It might be a misconception, but this is just the first conception that you would have in mind. And I believe it's the same with the International Booker Prize. I'm I'm more curious to go and buy a book that has that kind of stamp of approval on it than something from a more commercial aspect, if you will. That's so interesting, because when people ask me, what is the International Booker Prize for? I always say it's for readers. Yes, the author gets their name lights. Yes, the publisher sells lots of copies. In the end, 
it's for readers because it's a way of taking people by the elbow and saying, got to read this book. It is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, Meta, honestly, it's such it's been such a great pleasure to have you on board and throughout our correspondence. And I hope we do stay in touch and maybe do something very soon together with Silverline. Thank you so much for your time and I wish you a wonderful day. Abdullah, thank you. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure. As you can see, I can talk for the world about books and reading. <laughs>